Welcome to the Neon Noise Podcast, your home for learning ways to attract more traffic to your website, generate more leads, convert more leads into customers, and build stronger relationships with your customers. And now, your hosts, Justin Johnson and Ken Franzen. Hey, 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 Neon Noise Nation. This is the Neon Noise Podcast, where we decode marketing and sales topics to help you grow your business. What's going on, everybody? This is Justin Johnson, and with me, I have my co-host, Mr. Ken Franzen. What's up, Ken? How are you doing today? Doing well today, Justin. Looking forward to speaking with our guest, Brian. He is uh, going to bring us some design advice in a unique manner, and so I can't wait to dive into this conversation. Cool. Me too. I have a feeling that we may have to toss up a language disclaimer on this show today. Um, <laughs> not a problem. However, not a big deal. I am looking forward to hearing from our featured guest. He is a designer, educator, entrepreneur, and co-founder of GFDA, goodfuckingdesignadvice.com. Today, we will be speaking with Brian Burge. I would typically have a bio that I would go through on our guest at this point, but I think I'm going to just read some of the stuff off the GADA site instead. I have fall in love with repetition and fucking practice. This isn't enough. I need more fucking advice. Carve your fucking path. There seems to be a lot of fucking going on here. You guys have all kinds of cool swag from swear jars to don't fucking procrastinate coffee mugs to fuck it list notepads. I can't wait to hear your story and what you guys are all about. Brian, it's fucking good to have you on the show today. Welcome to Neon Noise. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fucking great to be here. Awesome. Do me a, bit, a, a little favor and uh, give me a little background on you. All right. So uh, let's see. I am uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, born and raised. Uh, I am actually back living here again. I was gone for about uh, 12 years. Uh, I went to the I was super far away to the great state of Ohio. Um, to get an education, both undergraduate and graduate there. And uh, then, uh, so I went to Kent State University, which in fact is where I met uh, Jason Bacher, who is my uh, current business partner. Um, we were, uh, well, I'll get into the business stuff in a moment. Um, after that, I lived in Cincinnati for a little while. And uh, now I'm back in Pittsburgh, uh, my wonderful home city, home state of Pennsylvania. So talk to us a little bit about how you guys got your start, because uh, it's an interesting story and uh, you know, kind of how you got your start and uh, maybe where that's taken you to today. Yeah, sure. Well, you, clearly it did not very far because I'm back in Pittsburgh, right? <laughs> 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 well, at the very least, I'm not you know living in mom and dad's basement yet, but uh so Jason and I uh, both went to Kent State University where we had met. Uh, there's uh, there's a, like a year or two difference between us. He's a, a smidge bit younger than I am. So we knew of each other in undergrad, um, but because of the way that Kent State's program works, uh, we didn't really interact a whole lot. There, the program at Kent is very lockstep in that you, know, you take class number one, which is only offered in the fall, and you have to pass that with a certain GPA to take class number two that is only offered in the spring. So you know, we'd kind of like pass each other in the hallway and, you know, we sort of knew who each other were. But beyond that, we didn't really interact until graduate school. So um, Jason went immediately from undergrad into graduate school. And I actually had taken uh, a year off. I tried to desperately to escape the state of Ohio, but uh, that happened to be during the uh, economic downturn uh, in 2000, end of 2008, early 2009. So jobs were scarce. And, uh, 
yeah, I ended up uh, finding my way back to Kent State uh, to uh, initially to teach as an adjunct uh, faculty member for a semester. Like they were letting me teach, uh, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator, nothing that you can fuck up students too badly with, you know, without having a whole lot of teaching experience under your belt. And uh, and so anyways, that that eventually after that year uh, rolled into me um, going to graduate school. And so then he and I were at that point, basically in the same classes, the same grade, quote unquote, um, and interacting a whole bunch. Um, so from there, we uh, we were both teaching classes. And uh, the, the story basically goes, we would go uh, in the mornings and get coffee after Jason's class. He taught like a 730 in the morning class. So that would usually wrap up around 830, 9 o'clock. And uh, we would go get coffee and we'd just shoot the shit. Uh, we were both some of the only students that had come uh, to the graduate program from undergrad, like within the the Kent community. So everybody else was from somewhere else. And uh, at least at first, we were both kind of like, oh, fuck all those other people, right? Like, <laughs> we're, we're the ones that have come from the undergrad program. So, you know, we I guess we thought we were special or something. But we're walking back and getting coffee and talking about the challenges of uh, teaching and engaging students and, you know, um, trying to impart important lessons to them uh, as we went. And so we weren't really serious, but we were sort of joking about like how we could get better, I don't know, better engagement from our students, get them to pay attention and, and soak in whatever bullshit wisdom we had. And so we were walking back and we thought like, how could we, how could we, you know, get people to pay attention to us more? And we thought, well, uh, maybe we could make like some sort of website where uh, students could come and they could get design advice. Like they could upload their work and there'd be some sort of magical algorithm that would happen. And they'd, it would say, you know, like, oh, well, you know, this part is wrong. Maybe you need better contrast. And in theory, of course, that sounds uh, great, I suppose. But we uh, uh, we're neither of us are that smart. You know, we don't have development backgrounds. Um, so coding something complicated like that is clearly out of the question. But uh, as we were going, we thought, well, we could uh, maybe we could make one of those websites that just has like a random piece of advice or a statement or an explanation or whatever. Um, and that seems something with our small brains that we would be able to actually do. Um, but again, faced with this problem of like, well, you know, our students aren't necessarily paying attention to us in class anyways. Why? Why would they come to a website to pay attention to us? Um, and of course, the answer to that was clearly, uh, well, let's put some profanity in. Um, That'll work. And we said, well, let's let's limit it to like the F word, and we could say things like, "Be fucking bold, make the logo fucking smaller." Um, and literally, like on the walk back, we're like, well, what would we call such a website? Uh, and I don't remember whose idea it was specifically for the name, but we just both sort of shrugged our shoulders and said, "Good fucking design advice." Um, so we ran back to the graduate studio, uh, and lo and behold, the uh, domain name, www.goodfuckingdesignadvice.com, was in fact available. Um, no one else had purchased it previously or parked it or anything. So um, we bought the domain and got to work. I started with, uh, I started doing some basic design ideas, and I said to Jason, I said, I'm going to make this on like a, uh, a four or five column grid. I don't remember what it was. Said, you start putting the code together um and you know we were just sort of like we weren't really sure if the other person was entirely serious we had only known each other for formally for a, a couple of weeks so we were just sort of like all right well you know i'm in 40 percent. he's in 40 percent. 
the sum total of that is 80%, and that's close <laughs> enough to 100 to say that we're doing this. <laughs> we're in. So uh, in the very first day from, from like literally 9 to 5, we, we like skirted all of our important graduate student responsibilities of, you know, researching and smart people things and writing and what, whatever else we were supposed to do. And uh, we built this website, and uh, we had, like, I think it was 25 pieces of advice to get started. Uh, they were all, at the time, very design-centric, very specific to the practice of graphic design. Um, and we launched the site. We had no intentions of turning it into a business of selling products or speaking workshops or any of the many things that we do nowadays. It was just a, this is funny to us, like, we're a couple of 12-year-old boys, um, let's make it, and put it out on the internet and see what happens. And fortunately, we were smart enough to do uh, a couple things. One, we, um, we, we connected it to Google Analytics uh, so that we could actually see how this was going to perform. We didn't, again, we didn't really have any expectations of it, but it was like, ah, well, let's see. Th that was like super important because that really told us that we had something uh, in the end because, we, so we posted it at like five o'clock and we waited. Like until the end of the day, we waited until midnight. We both came back to the graduate studio and we checked our analytics. And lo and behold, we had had like 500 visitors in like six or seven hours. And we were like, oh, holy shit. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, when you're like, when you think about it, if you're a, a student or a young professional and you're trying to get people to your portfolio site, you're like thrilled if five people show up on any given month, right? It's like, oh. It's so great. Five people, except, you know, one of them's you because you've got to make sure that the lights are on. Right. And then, you know, another one's probably mom because mom's, you know, that's what mom does. And then the other one's probably also mom showing the nice ladies at work. So now you're down to like two, maybe. Uh, and that's, you know, those are very disappointing numbers. So for us, the very first night, 500 people was, you know, fucking amazing. Um, and then we checked the second night and it was 6,000 people. And then we checked the third night and it was 70,000 people. And we were like, oh, holy shit, we did something. Now what? So that was kind of the, uh, you know, I've been talking for a long period of time here. So uh, that was sort of the initial start of GFDA and us realizing that we had something that was more than just uh, a joke between the two of us within like the first three or four days. Impressive. So 70,000 crap in your pants got something going here what what was the next thought is it we need to contribute more content we need to monetize this we need to see if this continues how did you guys go from there well we went uh you know we, we'd put a uh, an email address up on the website for people to reach out to us submit their own advice um and just offer you know whatever sort of commentary they had so a couple of things that we got from that was uh first off like Lots of people submitted advice, and most of it wasn't very good, or at least in the sense of, you know, it wasn't like we had set out and we're like, oh, well, we have brand standards for our company at this point. But, I mean, we sort of had a sense for we're going to use the F word once in the piece of advice. It is going to be fucking, so it's going to be used as, like, uh, an adjective. I think that's, I don't know, my English isn't very good, you know. I'd probably get kicked out of the country if I had to take an exam. But, um yeah, so uh, so we had sort of like unspoken, like had these rules about how we we're going to use the advice. And so a lot of the advice that initially came in was, you know, like, fuck the fucking client. It's like, ah, it's not exactly the sentiment that we're going for. And, you know, like, I don't know. So a handful of things of pieces of advice that people submitted, we actually ended up adding. But 
by and large, most of it was not very good, or people would send like these long paragraphs complaining about something in their job, and it's like, eh, no, nope, still not the right, not the right feel. Um, but then what we also got was uh, we got a lot of hate mail. Um, I'd say about half, and then we got a lot of uh, a lot of praise uh, and a lot of you know interested people and people saying like, I want to buy a poster with your advice on it, or I want to buy a T-shirt, or you know whatever. So that was really what, like, this response from our, our community that we didn't know that we had um, was what sort of drove us, like, okay, well, I guess we could, we could print posters, we, we could make t-shirts, we there's, like, don't exactly know how to do that, but there are resources around us that could make that sort of thing happen. So um, we responded to some of the hate mail, and, you know, that eventually died down. I mean, some of my favorite ones were that we uh, had set the design industry back by 10 years. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And you know, and single-handedly. Of, yeah. And a lot of, I think a lot of people then and now that, uh, are offended by our website are either offended, uh, one simply because of the profanity and they can't see past it, which is, I mean, like, obviously I don't have a problem with it, but that's fine. I get it. You know, there's all sorts of different types of people and backgrounds and it works for a lot of people and it doesn't work for some others. And, and, you know, that's totally cool. Um, but some other people, um, misinterpreted our message also as uh, sort of a fuck the client mentality, which, I mean, we never have had that type of advice uh, in our listings. So, um, I mean, that was just sort of their interpretation and not really what we were trying to get at and say. Um, so anyways, uh, but, you know, of the two, 50% hate mail, 50% fan mail, uh, you know, you always have the choice as to which voices you're going to listen to, uh, either internally or externally. So clearly we decided to go with the, the folks who were, you know, cheering us on. So, uh, yeah, that, that is what led us to start the process of, um, actually making a business and selling products. Although even at the time, once we started into that system, into that mindset, I, I mean, we were in graduate school, we were like, ah, you know, maybe we'll get a little bit of extra side cash, but you know, for a good portion of the first, like two, three years of our business, and I'm using air quotes, I know nobody can see me, but I'm using air quotes. Um, we didn't really, you know, it was like, oh, well, this is just a side thing. Well, this is never going to turn into a legit job career, quote unquote. The advice that you were giving though, was, was it the same advice you were lecturing on, but just with a twist, a little shock and awe, throwing some profanity in there that garnered, that was that, that one notch that, uh, made the, the difference or was it different advice altogether? Uh, it was, it was, it was both. Um, so we started with a list of 25 pieces of advice very quickly, like as we continued to get, um, you know, more and more traction than we were, it was, I mean, early on, it was not hard to add advice. Um, a lot of the advice we were it very quickly, we we're up to 50 and then 75 and like hundred, 125. We tried to add them in like 25 quantity chunks. Why? I don't know. Just, it feels good. It's like the 10 commandments. It's a good solid number. Um, so, uh, but we, so we started with very graphic design specific advice and as time went on, um, we were, so it might've been advice that we were giving in terms of like a, a critique in a studio class, or, uh, a lot of times like we would ourselves be students in a class in the graduate classes. And one of the faculty members would say something and, you know, in a lot of instances, Jason and I were in the same class. So we would sort of like, one of us would perk up and like either nudge or look across the room at the other one and be like oh that's a good one like we could put the f word into that um 
so a lot of the advice over time has has also come from our personal experiences, whether it was the experience itself or somebody saying something in a classroom or you know a mentor or whatever. And it's like, oh, that would be a good one to to put into the site. And as time went on, we we realized that we weren't speaking just to graphic designers. And fairly quickly, I think we realized that. But um, you know, we realized that there were at first other creatives, writers, architects, artists, illustrators, you know, like all of those were engaged in our site. But then we also were finding that there's like CrossFit people and military people and fitness folks and, you know, like all of these other uh, demographics that were like enjoying our advice. And so that actually started to change a little bit of the direction of what we were doing fairly early on. Because again, our initial thought was like, graphic design specific advice. Um, and so if the, all the advice is numbered, if you look at some of those earlier ones, which we've never wanted to remove anything, but there are some that for people in other industries might not be immediately apparent as to what that means. Okay, cool. So on your website, you're listed as the good cop and Jason's listed as the bad cop. Uh-huh. Why is that? I'm the nice guy and he's not. <laughs> All right, there we have it. Yeah, you know, it's a bit of uh, you know, the working relationship is definitely like a good yin yang kind of kind of thing. Um, you know, and it's been really beneficial for us because uh, you know, again, jumping back to graduate school, um, somewhere along the way, like we had all these crazy initial experiences with the website, and you know, the first round of products that we came out with, uh, the the posters and the t-shirts um were like huge catastrophes just like everything that could go wrong went wrong we didn't know what the fuck we were doing thankfully we had a lot of friends to help pull ourselves together uh on both of those notes but um you know it was somewhere in the first i don't know nine to twelve months we said um you know if if we ever get anything out of this it would be great to be able to go and speak about uh the this crazy experience that we've had um and so not having any specific speaking gigs lined up or even knowing how to approach that we thought well one of the ways in which we could do a speaking gig obviously it'll be the both of us so we should prime ourselves for that experience if it ever if the opportunity ever shows up so since we were teaching studio classes um and we at that point we were also starting to do some uh freelance work together and go to meetings together we decided that in the classes like i would hop into jason's class and we would tag team running critiques and he did the same in my classes and it was a good opportunity for a concentrated period of time our studio classes were like two to three hours long where we learned how to uh play off of each other and read each other and know like you know like oh i can pick up the momentum here or like i'm totally bombing on this like i'll just make eye contact like please take this over i don't know what the fuck i'm talking about um so yeah and i think just in terms of how we learned very early on how we were interacting with students and with clients and, you know, ultimately then with speaking, uh, sort of what we felt most comfortable in terms of roles. Um, and so we just sort of have played off of that. So anytime that, uh, you know, somebody really needs to bring down the hammer, either in the classroom or in a client meeting or whatever, uh, then Jason is that, is that role. And, uh, anytime somebody needs to come by and, uh, clean up the tears, uh, then that tends to be more of my role. All right. So you have a little bit of a theme going on here. It sounds like you guys are, are willing to, to take risk and, and willing to, to fail. Um, or at least uh, I, in the story that I'm gathering or what you just told, that's kind of what I'm gathering from that. 
and on your website, you talk about it a lot as well. So let's jump in real quick about risk-taking. Um, you know, over the years, Neon Goldfish, we've done some quirky things. I think that some of our clients are like, yeah, I wish we were a marketing agency with a goofy name like Neon Goldfish. <laughs> we could do silly shit too, but we're not. We have to be conservative because we're in a boring industry. And, you know, you're talking about risk-taking in in the creative world or, or taking chances and also learning from failure. In today's age, though, I think a lot of businesses, entrepreneurs are scared shitless of risk because of one failing, but two, the backlash they might receive because it seems like anyone farts crooked in the world today that there's a, you know, an anti, there's a rally against you and you have to yeah. answer to people. Yeah. And it's, it's fearful that that's fearful alone, just to have to spend time away from making money, doing the money, making things we do to just address that to almost the point where it's no chance taking is being made at all. So talk to us, your approach risk and how you tackle failure. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so for, for us, one thing I will say is that it's not that we aren't, uh, regularly scared shitless, uh, cause we definitely are. But I think for us, it's like it's the the courage to move forward, anyways, um, and just to accept, like you know, to become comfortable with being uncomfortable or used to being uncomfortable uh, is a frequent spot we find ourselves in. Um, and I think that that wasn't necessarily I know that it wasn't necessarily how we set out initially, like like with a, a deliberate mindset, but it is what has happened. So. Uh, I sort of touched on our first couple products were complete failures um, in terms of our production portion. Um, and so that uh, so I'll, I'll give you that story and that sort of lays the groundwork for why we think about uh, our process and approach the way we do. So the first two products we had were uh, posters and T-shirts. And uh, we didn't, you know, when we when we started the, the, the company started, quote unquote, um, we we didn't have any money, right? We're graduate students. $20 bill goes all really long way to buying beer. So um, it wasn't like we had this, uh, we didn't have venture capital or, I mean, even money, you know, in our own bank accounts to like make products. So the first thing that we did was um, through a recommendation of a friend of ours, we decided to run a pre-sale for our t-shirts and posters, um, almost simultaneously launching those. Um, and that was just because I mean, we didn't have the money to to buy that in advance. And we had no idea um, how that process really, really worked. I mean, we knew generally, but not enough that we could, not that we really felt comfortable knowing like, oh, this is how this will turn out. So um, initially we had hired, uh, I'll give you like the abridged version of the story. We had hired somebody to do both the t-shirts printing and the poster printing who was like, is it like a lateral move, like another college student. So despite the fact that we're in a college town and like there are more t-shirt shops than there are Starbucks, um, for some reason we thought it would be a great idea to hire a college student to do this. <laughs> I don't know. We were trying to save money. You know, we had, in, in our pre-sale, we had gotten um, about $10,000, which was, you know, more money than he or I had ever seen um, in a bank account of the mutually owned or separate. So uh, we were pretty excited about that. And we're hoping to keep as much of it as possible. But um, as we found out, hiring a college student um, is not necessarily the best way to go. So uh, we'd done this pre-sale and we had basically said, um, we will ship all of the products uh, on Black Friday. And 
it ended up coming down to the weekend before Thanksgiving and we had nothing from the guy that we had hired. And he uh, basically had just like decided that he was going to jump ship. He had attempted a couple t-shirts and they were terrible um, and then just completely gave up on the posters. And so here we were like less than 10 days away from what our customers were expecting. Um, and we had zero products. Um, and a couple things. One, Jason and I are not people to miss deadlines, which we are take very seriously then and now. And uh, also, it's a great way to completely ruin your career before you even begin to create a website called Good Fucking Design Advice, put your name on everything in the products and the website, and then take people's money and not deliver the products. Uh, that's just, you know, you're, you're, you're totally screwed if that happens. So, um, so we got to work. We uh, got some friends of ours, one friend who knew how to do a little bit of screen printing and had the equipment. Um, and the posters we printed in a three-day, no-sleep, non-stop printing marathon. We had sold somewhere around like 300 posters, I think. Um, and, you know, in the screen printing process, lots of things can go wrong. So you need to print like 400 to make sure that you can make your 300 you know, clean, perfect Helvetica type set prints. Um, and so we, so we managed to pull that off. Unfortunately, two days later, we had the posters cut down. They're like on a 19 by 25 sheet and the finished size is 18 by 24. Um, and we took them to a company to cut that uh, half inch off on all borders. And uh, half of the posters, uh, the gentleman who was running the chopper, uh, chopped the left side twice rather than the left side and then the right side. Oh. So then we had to go back and print another 200 posters. Uh, yeah, again. So it was like this really uh, stressful, very work intensive period of like six days trying to make sure that all of this came together and that we could send everything out on time like we had promised people to that we would. Um, moving on from there, the first round of coffee mugs that we had made, we thought, oh, we've got it. Like, we can, this product, we don't have to print ourselves or with our friends. Like we can order product from a company and it will be sent to us and then it's done. And then we just put it in a box and send it in the mail, but we're dumbasses. And we, uh, we like took the, the coffee mugs and we're like, oh, well the coffee mug is this size. And we found these like four by four by four inch cardboard boxes. And we, like, I mean, it was like a glove fit, like the mug fit perfectly with the handle pressed up against the back corner of the box. And then we put a piece of tape on it and sent it in the mail. And lo and behold, uh, if you ship a piece of ceramic ware in the mail, not in bubble wrap, it breaks. <laughs> so we sent out like, we bought the minimum order of mugs, which I think was 72 at the time. And like 60 of them broke. So like all the profits that we could have had from that, we had to like, reorder the mugs and then ship them out. And it was like, uh, can we not do anything right? So, uh, you know, but these early experiences for us were really like, I mean, there's such dumb mistakes. Um, but you also have to keep in mind, I mean, we're all, we're graduate students. We're doing client work. We're, you know, with a million other things going on, this was not our primary focus, but something that we were just like figuring out as we went. So this sort of, uh, like commit first, figure it out later, approach is really what defined our early process. And then as we continue to move on, you know, the, I think the, some, there's somebody that has this great quote about the purpose of life is to continually fail at greater and greater things. So, you know, I, I would say at the very least, we've not made the same mistake 
again and again and again. We just make new mistakes on bigger and larger and more complicated problems, and then we learn from it. Um, and one of our main, uh, when we give lectures and workshops, one of our main takeaway pieces of advice is uh, experience is a thing that you get the moment after you need it. So until you go out there and you start like fucking things up and making mistakes, like you're just not going to have that experience. It's that's the only way to get it. That lays the foundation for us for the the risk taking uh, approach. And um, you know, it's it's really been in the last like probably two to three years that we've been able to uh, clearly identify and articulate that um, as as who we are and our offering and uh, the workshops that we do. Um, yeah, so uh, that's that's sort of how we ended up here. Perfect. So to be creative, to try to get from a marketing standpoint, and, and I think of that from a creativity mm-hmm. side, from a marketing standpoint, how do we break through the noise and be a risk taker to be bold to, uh, without, uh, or, or maybe do offend people. You just say, screw it. I don't, I don't give a shit. I mean, wh- what's your take on that? Uh, that's a, that's a great question. And sort of a, it, it's both easy and complex to give you the, the, a bullshit story starting of an answer. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, so in terms of, of risk-taking and creativity, um, I'll give the, the disclaimer first. Like, I don't feel that risk-taking, it's it's not like taking stupid risks, right? It's not like, well, I'm going to jump out of the airplane without a parachute, um, you know, that kind of thing, or however you want to make the equivalency in, uh, in the creative industry. Um, I think the first part is uh, defining what's at risk. Um, and so it's like, okay, well, do you want to do something that's, um, you, you don't want to do something that's going to put your relationship with the client at risk or, or whatever. Um, but what you, what, what is often the problem is there's some sort of like ego thing. Like I'm afraid of putting this out there, um, whether that's happening on behalf of you as an individual or, um, you know, the client, it's like, uh, I, I don't know. There's like this uneasy area, but for, for, for me and for us, I think when we talk about risk-taking, it has to do with, um, so ri- for us, risk is like the lifeblood of the creative process, right? So if you are, inherently, if you are doing something that's creative, innovative, or disruptive, you are taking a risk in some form, whether small or large. If you're not taking uh, a risk, then whatever you're doing can't possibly be creative, innovative, disruptive, whatever industry business jargon you want to use, because if, if there's no risk involved, that means that you have a strong idea of what the outcome is going to be. And if you have an idea of what the outcome is going to be, then that means that somebody else has already done it. Because then you can look and you can point and you can say, oh, so-and-so has already done this. In which case, then you're not being creative. You're just, you're just sort of like a lemming following in the tracks of somebody else's idea or approach. So if you're going to be innovative, if you're going to be creative, then there is some amount of risk, either small or large, that has to be a part of your process. Does that answer, does that answer your question? No, it question? does. It does. It's, it's thinking, being conscious of the risk you're taking, understanding, you know, what the, uh, not to just jump, jump blindly at something, but to, to take risks, just to, to, to make them calculated ones. Right, right. And I think, um, you know, we're, we're working on um, uh, a couple things right now in terms of moving GFDA forward, one of which is we're working on a, a book. And uh, so I've been doing some writing for that. And one of the things that has kind of come out of the writing um, is that it's, you know, you, you have to take a chance, but it's not leaving 
your creative process up to chance, right? It's not like they're they're, they're too uh, they're they're how do I say this? Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. So in your process, you have to take chances, but you also have to make use of your creative process, and you have to put in the work and the time in order to bring those ideas to fruition. And our uh, challenge, admonition, whatever you want to call it, is to make sure that that risk-taking, that chance-taking portion that happens early in the process exists and that you're not just like looking out, seeing what everybody else is doing and then copying, emulating, whatever. Does that book, is that going to follow a lot of the items from the workshop, the art of risk-taking? Uh, the book is, yeah, it will have a, a, a section about risk-taking in it. It's basically... Um, we are we're in the book proposal phases, and I think we've got a couple of publishers that are interested. Um, we're trying to take the advice that we have and uh, expand upon it. I think we'll probably do like a hundred pieces or 150. Um, we're not that far in to say the specifics about it yet, but to uh, to take the advice and to you know write a couple paragraphs about it um, and just take a little bit of a deeper dive into it and uh, both as a general sense for creatives, but then also to um, talk a little bit in the book about our experiences and how that informs, you know, this section of advice. So uh, in theory, let's say there's a section on risk taking and we've got, you know, 10 pieces of advice that are in there and then uh, a story or two about where we've uh, found that in our practice. All right. Let's talk about the pledge on your website. You sure. have a, what do you want to know about I want to, I want to hear, uh, one, the, uh, the reason you have it in two, okay. uh, and I'm gonna go ahead and read it off real quick and then I'm gonna let you expand upon it. It's I blank hereby swear to abandon all fear to question everything, to trust in myself, to honor those before me as I excel and to support those who follow as they ascend. I swear that I will never accept another standard for success as I will set my own measure higher. When I am finished, no one will ever fuck, fucking look at blank the same way again. So I love this. This is kind of cool. And you got pictures of people who have taken the pledge, filled it out, and it's on the site. Tell me about this and give me some uh, insights on uh, what it means to you or what it means to others. Sure. That was, a, that was by the way, that was a brilliant reading. I don't think we need to stop the podcast and start over again because you, you, like, nailed that <laughs> right there. Perfect. <laughs> so, um so the, the pledge, uh, the pledge was actually one of the very early uh, sort of social things that we had put together. So initially, um, so we talked about posters, coffee mugs, T-shirts, all that came out. And then um, we hit a point where we were like realizing that people were taking photos. And I mean, this was like seven years ago and, you know, Instagram, Twitter, all those were much more uh, fresh. Um, so people were taking photos and interacting with our social content and we were like, looking for a way to have a little bit more of a back and forth dialogue uh, and to get other people putting themselves out there and swearing. Um, so, so Jason and I, like, we came up with, we were like sort of loosely talking about this idea of like, how can we get some sort of social engagement um, that is free and interactive in some way? And we didn't exactly know what the solution to that was. And um, it just so happened that I went away for a weekend and Jason sat down with um, one of our other roommates who also happens to be named Jason. And uh, they sort of, they came up with this pledge um, 
And I came back and like it was like written out and minor tweak here and there. Um, but that was that was like what made it happen. And again, it was sort of this uh, with Jason. And I it's always this 50 50 thing. So um, he sat down and worked with uh, this other Jason, Jason Richburg, and had the pledge written. And then I came back and he's like, got this pledge thing done. Uh, you got to put it up on the website and figure out how all the social content's going to work. And that was, of course, the shittier end of the bargain on that one. So. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that was an early lesson for me that I need to uh, uh, hit it a little bit earlier before him so that I don't end up on the shit end of the stick all the time. <laughs> um, so we, again, we were very uh, early on. I think it was less than the first year when we had put that out. And um, it was, uh, it, it, for us, it was a bit of a risk because it was like, okay, well, let's put this out there and see if anyone's going to bite on it. And, uh, you know, we put it up there and then Jason and I took our own photos and, you know, put those out. And then for like a week or two, nothing. And we're like, oh, maybe we're, maybe we're fucking idiots. Maybe we look like, maybe we look really dumb. Uh, and then we thought, okay, well, let's, uh, so we printed a couple of the pledges off. Um, and we went around the graduate studio and to some of our students and we're like, here, hold this piece of paper. No, 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 no. Don't read it. Don't look at it. Just, just hold that piece, piece of paper. I'm going to take your picture. Uh, this is definitely not going to end up Trust on the internet me. somewhere. So, uh, yeah. So we, then we added, like, you know, we had about six collective friends. So then there were, like, eight photos up there. And, you know, then very slowly, uh, you know, posting started to trickle in. And, uh, you know, I mean, at this point, we've got, like, hundreds, probably even thousands of submissions. Unfortunately, on the website, we had... Uh, We've changed the API for how that loads. So at one point, like early on, it was with Flickr. And then we moved to Instagram. And then Instagram, I think it was a year ago, changed their API. So now there's just like, I don't know, I think there's like 20 or so sitting on there. But um, it, for us, it's like, you know, nobody's really going to sit and like scroll through that page necessarily. We're more interested in, in what the, the pledge itself means to people. Um, but so early on, the, the, so we launched the pledge. It's, it's like running. We're starting to pick up traction. Uh, and we actually got one of our very first uh, speaking engagements out of it. Um, we were, it was funny because we had noticed uh, that there was like this large group of people that had taken the pledge and had, somebody had printed it out for them on yellow paper. And of course, again, being early on, we were like, oh, sweet, look, there's like 40 people took the pledge in that one photo. That's great. It, I really wish they would have taken them individually. That would have made us look like cooler <laughs> but okay cool whatever you know at least at least we got that photo on there um and then shortly thereafter the people uh who run that conference like the next time around so somebody had brought that to their their conference um the next time around uh they invited us to come be speakers and workshop leaders um and that was like the first we had spoken maybe two or three times before that but that was our first like conference it wasn't like going to a university or anything and we were surrounded by a ton of other uh, speakers who were like way more talented and way more creative than we were. So it was a, it was definitely a humbling experience and also very motivating to see uh, where some of these people had been and what they had done and think about how we could apply some of their lessons to our practice. So the speaking engagement workshops, I mean, tell us a little bit about those. Where, where might we find you or do you have anything coming up in the, the, uh, the calendar for, the rest of this year up to coming next year and kind of what are your workshops about or your speaking engagements? What, what do you kind of focus on? Or are they a random variety? Sure. So, um, our lectures are, our lectures started, I think, uh, 2011 or 2012. And again, like, as I was saying earlier, the, uh, 
the purpose was to initially tell people about just this ridiculous story that we had and uh, have continued to keep having. So um, the, the lecture is uh, a good bit of what we started the podcast with, just our story and how we got going. Uh, of course, there's a lot of pretty pictures that go with us and, you know, two very attractive men that stand up on stage and deliver the information. Um, but uh, so, we, yeah, so we were doing the speaking engagements and sort of slowly out of that, we started realizing like, oh, well, a lot of the people who were inviting us to come out are um, universities because obviously we connect very well with the college crowd and young designers. Um, so then we started thinking like, well, you know, we could do workshops where like we come out, we do a lecture and then we do a weekend workshop. We've seen other professional creatives do that kind of thing. Uh, and for us, it was like a possible opportunity to just expand our reach, get more money out of the opportunity, et cetera. So we started doing um, very design, like graphic design based workshops, um, teaching like a series of exercises and projects over a weekend. Um, and we did that an, a couple dozen times uh, at different places. Um, and eventually we sort of started feeling like, you know, our day-to-day -day work isn't like a typical graphic design studio. I mean, we do a little bit of client and consulting work, but um, it's not like some close friends of mine who graduated and they're like in it doing design work eight to 10 hours a day, day in and day out. And that's, that's their job. I mean, for us, it's, it's really is just me and Jason and all of the responsibilities from, you know, head janitorial work to chief of security uh, are, are us, finances, shipping, logistics, all of that is handled in uh, some capacity by one of us. So um, then we started thinking about two years ago, like, okay, well, we'll, you know, if this doesn't quite feel like who we are, then what is it? Um, and I think that was the point where we really started to take notice of our approach to problem solving and the risk taking aspect, and then start thinking about how we could offer that as uh, our primary workshop offering. We loosely came up with an idea for what the curriculum for this workshop could be. Um, and we we put like three sentences about it on our website just to see if anyone would bite. And lo and behold, like three days later, Nike contacted us, one of their divisions, and was like, hey, we see that you do this workshop. Uh, we'd like you to come out in like six weeks and do it here at uh, this week-long summit that we're having. And, you know, without exactly lying about it, we were like, oh, yeah, we do workshops all the time. <laughs> of course, not saying that we've never done this workshop before. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it was like, you know, so bending the truth a little bit. But at that point, Jason and I both had been teaching at, you know, the university for, for me. I think I'd been teaching for like six or seven years at that point, And he had taught for, for five before he moved out to New York City. So, um you know, it wasn't like we were unseasoned in front of a group of people as educators in various forms. Um, and of course, our other workshops. But uh, but yeah, so then that was sort of like the call to action, you know, like, oh, OK, well, we really need to flesh out this workshop and figure out how we're going to uh, put our money where our mouth is and, you know, create something that's that's truly a good experience for people. So um, so we did that first uh, workshop for Nike and, it, uh, you know, it could have been a huge catastrophe, huge failure, but uh in fact, it was, a, it was a great success, and they liked what we did, and they had us come back and do one for a different division. And, you know, those have led to workshops with other people, corporations, conferences, uh, et cetera, since then. So uh, we've, we've really been pushing that workshop and that experience as, as a primary offering that we, that we have nowadays. So I always like to ask, and, and this is probably uh, more 
That definitely ripped right the design alley. What do you see coming down the line? And this is this is your designer cap coming on uh, from the design world because mm-hmm. I I talk with Justin all the time, and then I feel like there's design, especially when it comes to websites, is stuck in this weird funk right now where everything looks so damn similar. And I, I always ask people that are in the design world what they see coming down the lines, trends, anything else that they like gets has them excited or has them disappointed. Um, any anything you want to share with us there disappointed is definitely a uh that's that's a good word i think that there you we've seen in recent years uh a very strong democratization of design and you know like whereas 15 years ago there were not a million wordpress templates or shopify or square or any of those services that are offering like good looking pre-designed templates for people um and so consequently like most of the web uh, has started to look very, very ubiquitous, very much the same, um, regardless of where you go. Um, because, you know, it's like to, to code a website from scratch and to have somebody put in the effort is, you know, that's a, that's a high ticket item. Um, and for a lot of like very small businesses that are just getting started, you know, the, the finances just aren't there for you know, the major design companies to come in and and provide their services. And, you know, I can sort of, I think I'm uniquely positioned as a business owner to understand both ends of the equation, right? Like I'm a designer, I've done client work and, you know, have my educational background and whatever. But then I also have this business owner mentality where like, I, you know, I see the value in like seeing where every penny goes and, you know, always feeling like there's never enough money. And, you know, how can I get something done for, a reasonable price and like where where do i drop the money and where do i have to uh pull back and not put so much money and effort into things so i understand why that's happening um but uh yeah i think that you know in terms of the web you're there's these experiences are becoming more and more streamlined and consequently more and more boring and less engaging so i think that the the uh, i mean i don't know i think the future of design has a lot to do with uh, the content and the experiences, and it's almost a given that things are going to, from a visual design standpoint, the things are going to look good. Um, I think you'll have uh, some key outliers that really are able to do something unique. Um, I think that's going to cost more money, uh, and I think for those people that have the money, it will be worth their investment. Um, but for the smaller and medium-sized folks, um, I think it's really going to have to be less about thinking exclusively about the visual or the graphic design and more about the totality of the experience for from customer service to, you know, the way that the content is written. Like it's really going to have to be about the the branding is really, I mean, I think it's already there, but more and more for even the smaller entities, it's going to have to be about um, the experience of the place when the place isn't there. So, whether you're getting an email from a customer service person, visiting a website, looking at their Instagram, like there has to be a continuity among all of those things so that it feels consistent regardless of, you know, what medium you're looking at or interacting with. All right, cool. I like, I like the, the, the kind of direction you're kind of taking or going there because the content component, I think is something that they still see a lot of opportunity for improvement. Whereas design, you're right. Everything looks good or you expect everything to look good these days. So, yeah, very yeah. cool. So frequently you, uh, yeah. So frequently it's like, 
you just go to these websites and you can tell like it takes like 30 seconds or and not even it takes 10 seconds you're like oh this is a wordpress template and then you, it's like oh these are like stock images and it just starts to feel very uh impersonal i mean i suppose it's better than you know some uh middle-aged woman who made a card company and is like using comic sans you know it's like a step above that um but uh yeah it's it's uh it's still not the the whole see just i tell you comic sans has been out for a while and you continue to (laughs) want to use it in our designs so this is just validation to stop using comic sans yeah just please talk please talk talk about that comic sans ledge He's, uh, he's that papyrus <laughs> or two of his favorites, so it scares us. Yeah. What? Love well, it. there's whatever this new script face is that everybody's using that looks like, you know, somebody did watercolor. Uh, like we just did the uh, National Stationery Show uh, a couple months ago in New York. And uh, I don't know that we were necessarily the, the, exactly the right fit for the show, but it was an interesting experience. And, you know, getting to walk around, I can't tell you. I mean, like there are some people that have some brilliant fucking ideas and great cards and products and so forth but there are also a number of people that are like middle-aged women that decided to, with zero background in design cards illustration whatever that are like oh i i found the scripty watercolor typeface uh and i'm gonna put that on a card and i'm gonna run a card company uh and so much so that uh we had a, a girl who interned with us last year was helping out one of the days at the show so at the end of the show we uh we, we had a bottle of whiskey and we just, it was like a drinking game. Like we just walked the show and every time we saw that typeface, you had to take a shot. Um, so fortunately it was New York and I, I got to take the right. subway home. Um, because I, you know, you know, and I also, fortunately I didn't die. Uh, you know, didn't get hospital drunk. Fun drinking game. I never thought about doing that. Like that's, that's a, that's a, yeah. that's a good idea for sure. Um, Brian, what has you excited, whether it's, uh, in your own business or industry wise, um, right now, what are you working on? That's fresh new. I know you talked about the book, but, uh, anything new that uh, you guys got coming down the line that you wanted to share? Uh, yeah, I think, um, so the, the two major things would be, uh, the book, uh, which is, is just super exciting because I've wanted to, I've wanted to write a book, uh, and sort of encapsulate the GFD experience in that for quite some time. Uh, and I think uh, about four years ago, we had a couple missed opportunities with proposals. We'd have uh, publishers reach out to us and say, hey, we want you to write a book. And we'd say, OK, what kind of book do you want us to write? And they say, ah, you know, just, um, you know, put a proposal together and, and we'll make it work. And it's like, all right. So we write a proposal and they'd come back and they'd sort of do the. Uh, yeah, you know, we were thinking something more like this. And like, OK, well, that's cool. That that works for us, too. Uh, you could have just told us that up front. We you. We didn't need this whole game back and forth. Um, and so uh, the same thing happened like three or four times with different publishers where it was like that exact experience, like write us a proposal. Nah, we were thinking more like this, like, okay, so we modify that proposal, send it back, and then they take it to a, whoever their higher-ups were, and uh, you know they'd be like, oh, absolutely not. Like, we're not going to have a company called Good Fucking Design Advice write a book. Um, but, you know, now we've been around, like, you know, they haven't been able to kill us yet. We're, we still exist, and so uh, with a bit more of a reputation and validity behind who we are, our message, who we talk to, who we work with. Um, now it's, you know, it's prime opportunity for us to be able to do this. So uh, I'm very excited about that moving forward. And then uh, the, the risk-taking workshops, uh, again, are like a really exciting thing for me. Um, we got to do 
some this year. We uh, we did a tour of Europe for the first time. It was, uh, both me and Jason, our first time visiting Europe. Uh, unfortunately, we got to do it on somebody else's dime. Um, and so we did our workshop in Barcelona with a conference called uh, Off. Um, Off is an I'll sort of plug them. They're 17 years running. At least this year was the 17th one. Uh, they'll be doing 18 again next year. And uh, I don't know if you guys or anybody in your audience ever pay attention to conferences, but for a conference, particularly a creative one, to run that long, um, they're definitely doing some really great things. So we, uh, we had a great opportunity to speak there and do our workshop. Um, it was also the largest conference I've ever spoken at. It was like, I think the attendance was 3,000 people. Um, so prior to that, we had spoken, you know, the max we had spoken to was like 500 people, I think. Um, but it was sort of an interesting experience because, you know, we got there and I was like, oh, this is way bigger than I thought. And, then, you know, they like, you know, you get up on stage, they like mic you with a little mic that comes around that's like flesh colored and, you know, you can't really see. And up on stage, there's uh, there's like the couch and the coffee table that nobody uses, but they put it up there for, you know, whatever visual yeah, effect. Yeah. um so it was like real like oh man this is this is the big leagues and yeah like you know there's like two thousand chairs in front of you and then a megatron screen outside the design museum for all the people that want to eat hot dogs while they listen to you talk uh that was that was definitely an experience so we got to run the workshop there uh and then we did it again um in new york earlier this year in uh i think it was june for the 99u conference um and so, it, yeah, it's, that part is picking up steam. And I feel like, you know, every time we give it, uh, it gets better and better. And uh, the exercises that we're doing get more and more creative, more and more risky. Um, so, yeah, and it's a lot of fun. I think, you know, for me and Jason, like we both, we work remotely. I'm in Pittsburgh. He's in New York. And, um, you know, we're, we're primarily by ourselves most of the day. You know, like we have meetings here and there. And, uh, of course, he and I talk um, almost daily, sometimes twice a day. But, uh, you know, you're sort of like in this secluded environment. So for me personally, like I love going out and doing the workshops and doing the lectures because it's like, oh, there's real, real human beings out here. And it's, it's also very, uh, it's very fulfilling for people to tell you how much the content that you create means to them and how it's impacted them in different ways. So, um, you know, sitting by yourself for like six months and then you go out there and you, you get to give a lecture or something and someone's like, you know, I finally quit the job that I've hated for a year because of an email you sent out and you know i'm so much happier with whatever i'm doing now like that's that makes it all worth it sweet very very cool hey what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you uh they can email me personally at um brian b-r-i-a-n at gfda.co there is no m at the end um or of course you can visit the website goodfuckingdesignadvice.com or gfda.co if you don't want to type all of those letters um, yeah, any of those, uh, or, uh, if you've got a set of tin cans, you want to try to make that work, um, <laughs> flexible, <laughs> whatever works, right? Good stuff. Hey, Brian, before we say goodbye, if you had one piece of parting advice for our listening audience, what would that be? Oh man, everybody always asks this and I gave you my good one earlier. So I'll just repeat it again because I, I like it so much. And because sometimes I'm boring and unoriginal, uh, <laughs> So I would say, you know, uh, the, the main thing is experience is the thing you get the moment after you need it. So until you go out and start just making a fucking mess of everything, <laughs> you're not going to get what you need to move your creative practice forward. Whatever that creative practice is, whether you're a designer, an entrepreneur, a writer, I don't care. You've just got to 
start doing yeah. the work and be okay with it being shit for a while. And even once you're doing the work and it starts turning out good, you'll have days where it's shit again. And it's like, that's totally okay. Right. It happens to everybody. Good stuff. All right, Neon Noise Nation, we hope you enjoyed our conversation today with Brian. Be sure to go over and check out his website at goodfuckingdesignadvice.com. Brian, thanks again for being on the show today. Ton of awesome value, Neon Nation. The show notes from today will be available at neongoldfish.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, this is Justin, Ken, and Brian signing off. Neon Noise Nation, we will see you again next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Neon Noise Podcast. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, please subscribe, share with a friend, or write a review. We want to cover the topics you want to hear. If you have an idea for a topic you'd like Justin and Ken to cover, connect with us on Twitter at Neon Goldfish or through our website at neongoldfish.com.